Before we get started, I wanted to give a quick little editorial note that our guest Merrick Monroe wanted me to add in there. So I'm just going to read verbatim for what she sent me. Uh, Merrick would like to apologize. Well, I'm sorry. Merrick would like to acknowledge and apologize for her use of the term transsexual when she meant to say transgender lighting in regards to a particular scene in Matrix Revolutions. Uh, that part of the conversation happens pretty far into this episode today, but, uh, she wanted to be cognizant and, um, yeah, make that, make that correction. Um, no harm was intended. It was just one of those vocabulary mistakes we all make. And that's, uh, that's coming from me, not, not Merrick, that last part there. That's me. Anyway, and with that, let's, uh, let's get on with the show. Hi, hello, and welcome to issue 631 of Geek in the City Radio. I am the host that should have created a better fade out for that, Aaron Duran. I am the host that wasn't going to say anything about it, Beanerita. I'm still... And I'm the other other host that will totally throw you shade, Cable Hashitani. <laughs> and we have our returning guest. Hello, I am Merrick Monroe. Hello. Hola. Hola. I mean, look, I literally created uh, that opening as we were talking in the background. It, I liked it. Was it was very abrupt. It was very abrupt, but I will, I'll get, I'll get better. You're doing I'm, great. Thanks, Cable. It's You're just welcome. cool that we can put funny little intros in the beginning there. <laughs> it is fun. I'll create more. They are kind of fun. Uh, hi, everybody. Look at all the the chatters are showing up. Good times. Uh-huh. Chatters. Chatters. Hi. I sound like someone who still uses MySpace. <laughs> um. I also wasn't going to say anything about that, but here we does, are. Does anyone, out of morbid curiosity, go back to the wasteland that is MySpace? Is it still there? It's a music site, right? It's mostly music culture stuff now. Yeah. I don't think it, I... it was always a really good platform for bands to get like out there. Mm-hmm. They have a decent embedded music player. So mm-hmm. I was gonna say I've been there a few times and it's an oddly soothing and calm place to like find different bands and music styles. Yeah. There were a lot of local yeah. bands that I found through MySpace that uh that I like it has like it, it has a nice interface and like it's it's very user friendly. It's quite nice. It's because you can't change your pointer cursor to like a skull and crossbones or a bleeding heart or something anymore. Oh, <laughs> those days were the best. <laughs> Taught a top. whole generation how to code HTML. Mm-hmm. Unless Actually, you already knew. I for well, other for other drag. even dor- for other even dorkier reasons. Oh, we all know. Yes. That's why for, I'm not getting into it. Yeah. You you've and all we, heard this story. And we all find it precious. Uh, for some reason, I actually did a weird kind of mini deep dive on Tom from MySpace today just to see what he was up to. Um, he's up to basically nothing. Like someone gave him 600 million bucks to buy MySpace and he's like, great, bye. Yep. He did Didn't what you're supposed to do. Any rockets. Nope. Yeah. He's, yeah. Peace out. Yeah. I hope he's just living in some, wherever he wants to live, sipping fruity drinks and, you know, earning 20%, you know, I live in that Hans Gruber life that Hans Gruber never got to live. Mm-hmm. <laughs> he 
He didn't ruin democracy. Hans Gruber or Tom? No, Tom. Well, you know what? Arguably, Hans Gruber wouldn't have either. He was very much fighting capitalism, you know, by blowing people up and stealing money. But, you know. Do you you know the the joker behind Hans Gruber's name for Die Hard? No. I heard it and then recently and then forgot it. So do it. Hans Gruber is the name of the composer of Silent Night. Yeah. (laughs) I know this because in grade school, we did a play about the creation of the song Silent Night. And I played Hans Gruber. (laughs) That's kind of cool. There you go. Speaking of precious things. Yeah. And then also, and then we'll start the show, I swear to God. But him picking the name Clay in in Die Hard when he uses the fake accent. Mm -hmm. uh, That's apparently based on someone in production that no one could stand. (laughs) Mm -hmm. uh so yeah how's it before we start the show how's everyone doing how's the things going got a thumbs up from merrick that's dope we've had construction at guardian games for the past two days so i saw the pictures yep that looks new different yep it's a it's uh the physical separation of the retail space and the event space. Oh. I like to call it the uh, magic aquarium where we can sit and watch <laughs> all the magic players in their natural environment. That's awesome. Getting salty with one another. Oh my Just God. Don't do tap you know on how, the glass. Do you know how badly now I want to do a 15 minute like David Attenborough style documentary? Is there, is there going to be a clear divider? You can... oh, there, are, there are windows. Yes. I I've seen them. pictures. It's like cubicle walls, but they're windows. Mm-hmm. But it's still open on the top. Yep. Interesting. Uh, so it, it contains the parts <clears throat> to a degree, but they just go up then after that. Yep. We're we're going to be installing a lot of air fresheners in that area. <laughs> here, here now we see the Red Goblin aggro deck going up against what is known colloquially as White Weenie. <laughs> <laughs> Oh man. I've actually never seen that for magic tournaments. I've watched a lot of magic tournaments live and I never see anyone having fun with it. It's all so serious. Like, did he memorize this card right? And they they tech this deck in their group and blah 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 blah. It would be more entertaining with some It would be so much hosting. Oh my god, I would love to do that. Let's try to make it happen. Do it. I mean I I well years and years ago I can get you footage. All right. Well, well, years and years ago with the old owners of Guardian, we almost did something like that where myself and I think Cable or my uh, myself and Keelan, mm. we were going to do color commentary of an actual like official magic tournament, not casual play, but like like a tournament tournament. And like the owners were down and then eventually they realized that's going to anger the players. Mm-hmm. Like Keita and I, we we were going to pick out blazers and the big oh ESPN headphones, and they were and they like were going to get us a podium. Oh man, Scott was going to have a roving mic going around like after matches. So That's on round three, what it's like now. Oh my god, it is. But it's ours would be ridiculous. Like. 
Anyway. Well, I'm in favor of it. Thanks. I, think I support be this. Magic players take themselves a little too seriously, I think. They need to have some more fun. Yeah, yeah, I think so. Throw a little chaos into the into the mana world. A little <laughs> chaos and fetty. <laughs> that's that's just, magic humor. Just throw bits of chaos orb everywhere. Yeah. That was the crack set, right, Cable? Yeah, it was. Okay. Chaos confetti was the chaos orb, only you tore up the card and threw it. It's because it really happened. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's funny. I was I was there. Oh, yeah. Nestle Snipes and Dos Sexies doing colored commentary. <laughs> I feel like Keelan would still be down for that. He would. Um, I don't. I wonder if those characters are all that you know appropriate. Oh in, no, in they're highly no, no, they're highly inappropriate. They're yeah. very inappropriate. <laughs> are they still funny? Maybe. Yes, yes they are. Is it? But I mean, as long as you're like staying in your lane, right? That's true. That's true. It's satire. Yeah. As as long as no one's ever punching down, right? Which which you're not. You're punching across laterally. (laughs) Yeah. Mm -hmm. Lateral punching. Lateral punching is fine. That's going to be a ban for Norm pretty soon here. Yep. Lateral punching. It does sexies is uh, certainly a godparent to Manuel. Aww. You know how badly I want to get a family photo or a portrait <laughs> done now? <laughs> With like, you know, I don't know, me and like a much older version of Manuel outfits with the beard and everything. Mm-hmm. Like, Jace, I, I pass this on to Manuel. Jace. <laughs> oh, it's so dumb. Uh... We're not here to talk about dumb. We're not here to talk about this all the time, even though I could. Uh, We are here to finally do our deep dive into, or however you all want to do it, into all four Matrix films. I think we should say we're going to go down the rabbit hole. Uh, You even had the song and everything. (laughs) I know. Hey, it's we're going to do that Uh, today. Peel back a little bit. Today was my first day in like two and a half years of going back to therapy. So mm. and even though Good it was job. just like the, thank you. Even though it was just the intro, get to know the new therapist. Even the last 10 minutes, she was able to go like, pew, pew. So I'm like, oh, oh, damn. Wait, wait, what, what, what does pew, pew mean? It's, it's, it's getting right in there. Getting right in there. <laughs> that, it oh, should have been pew. It should have been pew, pew. Yeah. I get you. Yeah. She sees. She sees you, she and does. she's like, she's... "I see this," and you're like, "Oh, she's... yeah." She's going to be a good fit, though. So, uh, talking about work. health stuff, uh, in the past week, I have been referred out to um, a pain specialist, and I am also like on the books for a uh, like chiropractic consultation. I might even be eligible for acupuncture. Ooh. And I'm waiting on a call from mental health to see about getting an ADHD evaluation. Yeah. That's uh, what my therapist is doing too. It's kind of terrifying. Um, but, you know, maybe maybe there's a better better way for me to function on a day-to-day basis. And this might be the first step. So Awesome. Either way, you're going to learn something. Yeah. And I might get free chiropractic and, and have less pain. That'd be good, too. 
I know my my therapist was kind of fun. She's like, I will send you a questionnaire, um, fill it all out. She's like, also, I'm going to send one to your spouse or partner. And if you are able to, I want to send one for a parent so they can talk about habits they remember when you were a kid. I said, well, I can send one to my mom, but her answer is literally going to be, he was lazy. Like I said, my family doesn't believe in therapy. Mom, I'm depressed. Don't be. Oh, okay. okay. That's not, honey, that's not possible. That's You're not done. like that. Yeah. <laughs> to which no my else therapist in the family said, oh, you like really this. are Why from is a it just American you? family. I I talked about that with my my mom and my sister when I was home for the holidays and both of them were like, "No, yeah, we we probably have those things, but we're just going to keep living like this." Mhm. Yeah. Because we we have a lot of the same characteristics that that I have been told are, you know, indicators of ADHD. And they're just like, "It's fine." It's fine. It is what it is what it is. You just can't focus. I mean, I don't know. I don't think I had it as hard as other other kids might have in terms of like, oh, why can't you try harder? Or or maybe I've just like shut all of all of that shit into a little box of forget. Um yeah. but Well the forget box. <laughs> I keep yeah. mine in a bottle that I have to refill constantly. <laughs> Cheers. Anyway. (laughs) The Matrix. Hey, look, Norm's looking for therapy, too. Therapy for everybody. Speaking of therapy, though, I feel Mm -hmm. like I feel like the Matrix is actually a very good place that we can bounce onto that. Yeah, definitely. Draw draw those connections for me. Uh, Since one could argue that the Matrix is a manifestation of the internal struggles of both the Wachowskis and how they process the life and their own identity. And it also encourages you to put thoughtful introspection into your existence and whether you're fully living to the degree you want to, and that it's up to you and you have to make the choice if you want to make something change. Yeah. They just get to do it with bitching ass guns. (laughs) Like that's the one thing we don't get to do. (laughs) Well, we have video games. Yeah, mm-hmm. to, to process those feelings, <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> which the Matrix itself was technically a video game. So that's true. Yeah. Well, uh, who wants to start? Start off. We kind of Cable and I joked that this is the episode where he and I just kind of sit back and go. So I, I, know, I you do. kind of just assume that uh, Merrick and I were going to like just like run this, but I I do not really consider myself to be a a matrix specialist or, you know, like I have had, have put a lot of thought into these over the years. In fact, some of them, I I don't think I'd ever actually seen the third matrix until recently. Mm. Um, So you're not a neologist is what you're saying. No. (laughs) Awesome. Um, I I do want to give a bit of full disclosure. Uh, Merrick and I have watched these separately from one another, so we have not talked about this at all with one another, largely because I keep bringing up talking points that she will normally want to bring up herself. <laughs> yeah, I'm excited so. to hear you guys. Uh, Merrick was talking about this. <laughs> yeah. Yep. Yep. So should we go chronologically then? I think so. I, mean, okay. I think that makes the most sense. Go okay. back to 1999. 
Ooh. And can you summarize like which points you want to cover? Because are we just doing movies or is the Animatrix in there? Or what about the comics or so, any of the games? <laughs> uh, you are free to include the comics and games for insight. Okay. Mm-hmm. Uh, I rewatched the Animatrix a few weeks ago, so that's relatively fresh for me. Same. Uh, that one I didn't get to. I the the film critic in me basically feels for me it goes Matrix, Animatrix, Matrix Resurrections like that. That's my trilogy. <laughs> and and for me, I for sure had never seen any of the Animatrix stuff, but I I find it to be very valuable um, to the world building. So yeah. Uh, yeah, Merrick, we don't plan these out that well. I mean, so. <laughs> no, I know. <laughs> and yet you put us on the spot. Well, I just, I just wanted to see where everyone else was in terms of which media formats you had consumed for discussing. I think so. if we just stick to the four films with a, like a dusting of the Fair animatrix, enough. we're good. Yeah. That's Sounds good. Enough. Yeah. That's good. <clears throat> okay. One matrix. Yeah, mm-hmm. one. I mean, leaving aside all the cultural impacts, I feel, I mean, that can be part of it, but like, there's no point in rehashing that the Matrix came out of fucking nowhere. You know, it, first off, it had a wonderful ad campaign. It was one of, I probably one of the first ones to really take advantage of, you know, budding streaming video online. Like, mm-hmm. um, yeah, no one knew what they were going into. Like, I, I feel like that was the first time I ever went into a movie having no idea what I was going to watch at all. Um, not even realizing it was the Wachowskis. I don't, Merrick, did they ever say it was by them until the film debuted? Uh, I have no clue, honestly. I don't, I don't think I don't even did. remember seeing advertising for it. So. All I remember was ads for what is the matrix and that, and you would go to what is the matrix.com. Oh, and I think yeah. you just got the, uh-huh. you got the streaming stuff and that was it. Yeah, you're right. I do remember that. Yeah. And it was that vague that it didn't stuck in my head. Yeah. Uh, and the internet was still a baby at that point. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah. I was still, if I wanted to watch a trailer, I would start downloading before bed and then hope to God my modem didn't disconnect when I, before I woke up in the morning. You know, I, I was ask, already, I was in Portland by then, but still. Ask Jeeves was still around, so. 1999, oh, yeah. I'm pretty sure that I was like, done with chat rooms, but uh, Napster, probably still doing a lot of Napster and oh. like ripping Lime music wire. off the internet. Yeah, LimeWire! Mm-hmm. I remember being excited. In 1999, we lived in an apartment complex that had T1 connections which I think maybe you downloaded at 100 megabytes if no one else in the complex was going at the same. It was a big deal that this was wired for T1. Mm-hmm. I remember that. <clears throat> yeah. Um, yeah, and I think at the time, this is when I was going through like my super extra nerdy independent filmmaker phase because I feel like The Matrix came at the very end of that era. Like the rise of the independent filmmaker, you know, Tarantino, Rodriguez, the Wachowskis, um, Spike Lee. Like, that was the tail end of that. There was a lot of that in the 90s. You're right. Yeah. And I had recently, within the past few months, had watched Bound. Like, first for very shallow reasons, thinking it was just going to be this sexy movie. And then realizing, like, holy shit, this is a really good fucking movie. These Wachowskis tell a tight story. So, 
Um, I never saw that movie. I'm not sure. I can't remember if I mentioned it the last time I was on and we briefly touched on The Matrix, but did I talk about how that was basically their audition proof that they could get the budget for The Matrix and pull off the movie that they wanted? That Bound was? Yeah. Oh, no, that's cool. The studio didn't want to give them their full budget that they were requesting for The Matrix. And so they were like, well, we'll give you this much money and see what you can do with it. So they made Bound. And you can see a lot of the same cinema, cinematography, the same directorial style in Bound. And it's basically they're doing it for real and being like, here's what we want to do. We want to be the directors holding the camera and we are shooting these shots and we're in the scene, moving with the scene and directing it from within. And you can see it like in Bound, there's a scene where the two leads are on either side of the wall and it pans over the wall and a lot of the like hallway where the camera is moving backwards and and like preceding the action sort of a thing. Right. Everything that they practiced in Bound, they doubled down on for the first Matrix movie, except for Bullet wow. Time, obviously. Right. There's no no reason for that. In Bound. No. You got to <laughs> so get some secrets up your sleeve. Yeah, it's been it's been wow. It's been a solid decade since I watched Bound, so I should actually go revisit that. Oh, it holds up. 100%. Does it? That's cool. that's the one I haven't seen yet. And just the dramatic angles, the colors, the really extreme noir vibes—it's pretty choice. Oh, it's, it's a tight little noir flick too. Yeah. <laughs> really well done. Yeah. Well, cool. Uh, which I guess, yeah, that brings us to the Matrix. You know debuting in 99 and kind of blowing everyone away. I, I also seem to remember it not doing very well initially. I don't think that's actually, actually I don't accurate. Rem- I, don't I remember do remember that. it doing very okay. well because everyone saw it in the theaters and they made a point of doing it. That started becoming... This was still before Phantom Menace had come out. Right? Yes. Ah, yes. So this was the first movie. Like when I was rewatching it, I kept getting hit with all these like flashbacks to 1999 and what was going on at the time. And I'm like, so like Clinton was still president and I was married and (laughs) right. And it was everything that everyone talked about. Like I was working in a nightclub at that time and a bank and it was the same conversation at those two very disparate locations. Um, yeah. Phantom Menace was two months after the matrix. Yep. No. <laughs> so the yeah. matrix set the, like, I don't know that they set the bar. I think they created the bar and went, hi, this is where everything has got to be now. Right. And I think that was part of why Phantom Menace didn't do as well, as well as Jar Jar Binks, because they went, well, this yeah, this is fun, but this wasn't the Matrix. Man, Menace did just fine. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, like you looking at it now and thinking of what's come after, it's like there's there is no Marvel Cinematic Universe without the Matrix. There is so much of the past twenty years of filmmaking that doesn't exist without the Matrix. <laughs> hmm. And Just because you think, so? you think okay. they created the uh, the franchise blockbuster summer movie hit thing? As the way it exists now, yes, I do. 
I, I think that the, <clears throat> I think that was part of some of the pushback of the sequels because everyone was waiting for the sequels and waiting and waiting and waiting. And then they got it and, and it was not what they had built up in their head. But then we started to learn from that point, maybe we just need to start enjoying sequels for what they are rather than yeah. what we've made in our heads. Well, we go into more. I always felt like the Matrix sequels were not, they were not initially intended. They were and they weren't. Uh, the Wachowskis had originally pitched a trilogy to, mm-hmm. it was Warner Brothers, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, they had pitched a trilogy and that was part of the negotiation process was not just the small budget for an indie film first, but they they wouldn't do a full trilogy for these untested directors for a completely off the wall script. So the Wachowskis had to take their concepts and refine it to a single movie. Um, so what we got in the Matrix, the first one, could have spread out to three different movies. But they put it all in that first one, and that's why there was such a delay before two and three is because they were kind of like... And that's why two and three are so different. They didn't really know what to do with sequels because they didn't think that they would ever get them. They were Uh, basically like, well, we told the story. Oh, crap. Yeah. And I think that's a lot of what the fourth movie is kind of alluding to when they talk uh, meta the the boss guy, the CEO, is like, we're making this game with or without you, but we'd love to have you on board. Mm-hmm. I think that was discussion around Matrix 2 and 3, is mm-hmm. that they went, there's money here, people will pay it, we're going to make these movies, whether the Wachowskis are in it or not. Yeah. I, remember, I think re- I remember reading a few reviews about Resurrections that flat out mentions it. They're like... <laughs> In a weird way, they were kind of given kudos to Warner Brothers for allowing Wachowski to just kind of basically in a weird kind of meta way, give Warner Brothers the finger of like, yeah, this is kind of how you treated us with the first sequels. And now we get to tell it our way. So yeah. we're going to we're going to we're going to. Yeah, we're going to call you out on some of your bullshit from back in the day. So, I mean, to be fair, who is the head of Warner Brothers then and who's the head of Warner Brothers now? I have no idea. The, but that's that's the point is these people are fine throwing their predecessors under the bus all the time. <laughs> all right. Fair point. Yep. Yep. No, you're true. That's true. It's like, oh, yeah, that guy was a dick. Totally mentioned that because that was old Warner Brothers. It's not new Wasn't Warner me. Brothers. Yeah. It's like uh, you know gentler what? Warner Brothers now. Old, new, <laughs> present. Know. They're all shit heels. <laughs> So one of the through lines of all four main movies that I really enjoy is the opening. It's not an opening credit sequence, but the opening cinematics. Yeah. But before that, because in all four of them, it has the, uh, the Warner brothers lot pan sort of Uh a thing. And Mm -hmm. then they do And then they move into the movie logo, whatever. And it's got the color text and, the Warner Brothers logo in that initial shot is always for the first three movies, it was green and mm-hmm. it would dissolve into the matrix code. So it was a green logo on the tower instead of red, I think it is. Mm-hmm. And then it would yeah. code down in the fourth movie. It's blue. Oh, okay. And I think That's... that was our first indicator that I know I'm jumping ahead a little. I'm sorry. But... No, go ahead. That's fine. 
I think that That's was the first indicator that the Matrix and the way that they were portraying it was no longer that green code. It was blue, which is a kind of a spoiler thing. But I presume everyone watching this right now has seen it. So yeah, we're don't hide. We, we warned on this everybody one. that. Okay. Yeah, 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 absolutely. Yeah, but yeah, it's Matrix 2.0 basically in in the concept of the movie. Uh, so the updated color of the matrix is blue and blue is the color that you're watching out for as a cue that something is amiss and that you're being lied to. Right. And then in every movie, it opened with the, yeah, that is weird echo. Sorry. They fucking caught us. We have to get out of here. Agents are on their way. (laughs) Let me do this. I'm going to mute myself while you're talking. Oh, sorry. Every movie they open with the logo of the production company being the color that means you're being lied to. So I always found that. Oh, shit. That's I never. That's cool. I never made that kind of connection. Me mm-hmm. neither. And uh, in there the is chat... no detail left un, unviewed. Yeah. <laughs> of course. Um, in the chat, it's being mentioned that Bugs uh, has blue hair. Yes, Bugs has blue hair, and she only has blue hair in the Matrix, and a lot of people also wear blue-tinted sunglasses. Mm -hmm. In terms of other ship captains, they're wearing blue-tinted sunglasses, whereas, uh, what's Neil Patrick Harris's character again? I always forget. He's not the The architect. The analyst. The analyst. He's wearing blue-rimmed glasses, but you can see directly through them to his blue eyes. Mm. Uh, But a lot of the ship captains wear blue tinted sunglasses and what happens when you're wearing blue tinted glasses or any color tinted glasses your eyes like you're not perceiving that color when you're Mm -hmm. looking through it it's basically neutralizing it you know roy g biv prism stuff Mm -hmm. like like the password game with the with the red it's an old board game it has a red Cable knows. Oh, it's an old per it's an old person like game. Clue would do that too, right? You'd have the red thing that you'd insert the card into and it would yeah. show secret text. Yeah. Like that. That's yeah. it's the same premise. Yeah. <laughs> so it's it's kind of um I perceive that as they're wearing these blue glasses within the matrix because it would now I can't think of how it would actually play out. It would either so, neutralize to... the color or enhance it. Or is it I yeah, it would it would neutralize it. You're in a way you are visually immune to the lies of the matrix. If you're wearing the blue tinted glasses. Yeah. You're, you're right. filtering out the other blue by wearing yeah. that blue lens. They're blue blockers. Yeah, exactly. Which again is another tie into modern technology and consumerism and capitalism and the way mm-hmm. we're being pushed to buy useless shit that doesn't really affect us. Uh, but we need it. It's true. So. Aren't blue blockers yellow? <laughs> yeah, they are actually. Because, like, uh, computer glasses, they, they sell filtered computer glasses, and the, the lenses are yellowish. Uh, but a lot but that, of the modern ones lens. are blue. Mm. Mm-hmm. Um, only so effective. <laughs> uh, to take it away from, like, lenses uh, and filters, um, I, I rem- I'm remembering now a piece of trivia that said that um, in the original movie, Everything that w- in, within the matrix has a little bit of a green tint, 
So when, whenever they're like walking down the street in the Matrix, everything has a little bit of a green <clears> haze. <throat> whereas when they're in the real world, everything has a bit of a blue haze to it. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. Cooler lighting, I guess. Um, and that's supposed to be sort of because, well, you know, green, like old code and then blue. The blue is just considered like, well, that's a real world color. So that's how you know you're yeah. in the real world. So this this update in in Resurrections to that that blue being the Matrix is... That all ties together really well, especially because now we know that like the Matrix has been, it did get rebooted and it's it's revised. an update revised. Yeah. It's, mm-hmm. it's been updated to be I don't know a a better mousetrap, I guess. It's <laughs> a good way. Yeah. To a quick little like extra side nerdy note on the original Matrix DVD. If you had a DVD player in your computer. And then you had editing software that lets you peel layers off of codexes. That green code is always in the background of Matrix scenes. Aww. You could if you could remove layers, it's always there. Oh wow! Yeah, it's super nerdy. Yeah. <laughs> uh, someone it. also pointed out yeah. to me that in certain scenes, um, when it's raining, some of the raindrops are actually like streams of code. Mm-hmm. That was fun. Mm-hmm. It was a, a sign that the code was breaking down and it was the lines were being blurred between realities. Right. Yeah. So what was that towards the end of the first one or oh. the second one? Whoops. I'm back. There she is. <laughs> I glitched. Sorry. Is this the real Merrick? She's wearing blue rimmed glasses. No, they're purple. I swear oh, they're shit. purple. I'm wearing blue rimmed glasses though. <laughs> yeah. Yours are the blue ones. Yeah. But I have brown eyes. Ha. Huh? I don't know what that does. <clears throat> anyway, um, I, I keep thinking about the themes of like the original Matrix films um, really borrowed on the concept of, you know, creating an online life. Um, and like that was reality. But like, I feel like culturally we didn't quite get there. And I feel like video games kind of took that spot. Which makes me wonder if that is why Lana Wachowski chose the video game as like the the narrative cipher for Resurrections, you know, instead of an online life. Like uh, for some reason, my, my brain goes—I was to say my brain goes to <laughs> Second Life. I had friends that used to say like, "Oh, I had a movie viewing party." I was like, "Oh, where?" It's like, "Oh, all these friends." I'm like, "Wow, is your room in your house?" She's like, "Well, no, I did it in Second Life." What? Um. Which is so I don't know. I mean, I mean, what's what's folks' thoughts on that? Or you're like, Aaron, that's dumb. No, no, it makes sense. I mean, like in the early days of the internet, again, like chat rooms were a big thing, and I'm I'm sure that there's no small number of people who, you know, for whatever reasons, didn't engage socially to that level or to a high level in their in the real world, but were very socially active on the internet. Um, and I mean, there is a little bit of that in the beginning because you know he's a hacker or whatever, and so he's up late at night talking to people online. Um, but eventually that died out. And for a long time, I think that the internet was not a super social place. Uh, and so then video games have had, what, 15, 20 years of, of building up the social element of of their arena with stuff right. like, uh, what, is it called? what is it called? Second Life? Mm-hmm. <laughs> Um, and then so many, so many games now have a social element, even if it's 
independent play. Yeah. Like you mean it can share to social media or you can broadcast it and stuff. Um, I'm trying to think of a good example now of like a game where like you, you're just playing your own game, but there is still a lot of socializing. Like, isn't, isn't Fortnite kind of like that? Like it's not a game you play together, but you can like chat and stuff while you're playing it. I don't know. I'm old <clears throat> and square. I don't play enough video <laughs> games. I think Fortnite has a little bit of both. It has a team element, but also the built-in socializing of interacting with other players that are in the game that you're active in. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I, I think to like when I play Red Dead online, like can, I can have people join my posse and it's not a massive group system. It's four or eight, depending on your posse size. And you kind of only interact with them and you very much are then kind of creating your own narrative. You can do missions, but at least when I play as a posse on Red Dead, we're basically just kind of telling our own story in this world that Rockstar has made for us. Um, so maybe you're thinking something like in that in that department. That's a good example. Yeah. So I kind of want to dive into like the elements of made the second and third matrix. Those actually feel, from at least what I've experienced online recently, still feel more divisive than Resurrections. And I, I could be wrong, but I feel like people still have more strong opinions about those two. Um, I have also intentionally muted a lot of people that have had horrible things to say about Resurrections, um, not because they've had... And I'm fine with someone having, like, a legitimate critique that I don't agree with if they back it up with like film stuff. The critiques I've seen on resurrections have just been mean and, mm-hmm. and, and, and targeted towards gender issues and, and such like that. I was like, I have no, I have no place for that. So, um, I will but, say that, uh, I don't think I've watched two or three, um, in at least a decade, if not more, so this was my first, I know that I haven't seen the third one it, it, almost since it came out. Mm-hmm. And that was 2003. Both of those, both of those movies came out in 2003. So that, because I remember them being filmed simultaneously. Uh, yeah. And that was part of the big push of what they were doing. And again, how that affects modern filmmaking. Um, I had a very different opinion of both of those movies when they came out. Uh, I thought they were full of themselves and I thought that they landed flat and they weren't that they were trying to be philosophical and weren't and rewatching them. um, I've had different life experiences and I am in a completely different space than I was at that time. I was not in a good headspace in 2003. Um, and it was fascinating to rewatch those and especially through the lens of having watched resurrections and seeing exactly what the through line from the first matrix all the way to the fourth matrix is. And you can hear that same, the, the different things that the Wachowskis were trying to get across. And I think they are much better movies than they were ever given credit for at the time, except by Merrick. <laughs> Um, I, I think it has a lot to do with where you're at in your life and where you 
things that you have encountered in your life and philosophies that you have undertaken in order for you to truly accept messages that are coming across. That that sure. was my yeah. take when I rewatched it. My, for me personally, rewatching them, um, I actually always kind of liked Reloaded. I really enjoyed the visuals of Reloaded. Also, part again, like Cable, where I was in my life during Reloaded, uh, I was heavily into uh, Paranormal Radio, which is a weird connection, but there are so much. There is so much symbolism. Like the Wachowskis are basically hitting over the head with a hammer on the occult symbolism uh, within Reloaded. It's ridiculous. Which we have discussed uh, I, before is needed for movie modern movie audiences. Yeah, and I was kind of does not work. And I was kind of <laughs> there for it. The fact that the subway said "Limbo here," I'm like, <laughs> okay, right. Uh, I love the Merovingians, like all that stuff. Um, I still feel the architect scene is incredibly self indulgent, or feels like a studio note that says the audience isn't going to get this. And the Wachowskis are like, oh, "Fuck, yeah, they are. No, they're not. All right." I'm going to write a five-minute scene. Um, If you take out all of the um, triple word score Scrabble words that he uses, it's very straightforward. And they clearly wanted what's-his-name from the actor studio to play the architect. Oh, they did. They 100% did. Um, That being said, um, before Resurrections, uh, I loathed Revolutions. Uh, I felt like it was a betrayal of many characters, especially Trinity. Um, the treatment of Trinity just infuriated me in Revolutions. That being said, Resurrections creates this whole new spin for me in that, as least as one of my interpretations of Resurrect uh, of Resurrections being neo's character mr anderson being like well i had to make these sequels they were going to make them without me so i made them with this version i now get to repair all the damage i did to characters i now get to treat them how i always wanted to treat them and i feel like that's lana wachowski saying i didn't like the decisions we kind of had to make either so now i get to use the matrix to fix the matrix that I don't, and it resurrections now makes, I will say makes revolution enjoyable for me. Like I can watch it now and see a bigger arc towards the, you know, the curve of the arc and be like, okay, it fits the whole story. The one thing that stands out the most to me rewatching two and three reloaded and revolution is that it is very much putting women at the forefront of all of the action and all of the decision-making and all of the getting shit done. Uh It is always women like in, and I, I forget. And I, I rewatch it every five years or so probably uh, because it's been about that long that I can do that. (laughs) Uh, I forget for the third movie, how fucking badass those women are. And it's not just, trinity that's rad and is you know taking taking the pilot seat to get them where they need to go it's Mm -hmm. not just niobe 
piloting the mechanical ducks that nobody can do except she did it once years ago and we'll do it again. And <laughs> then she makes really clever commentary about how the ass of the ship is fat, which is like, I feel like that's kind of very much an aging woman thing to make. It's like, I used to be so good at this and now my ass is fat. <laughs> it's great. It's great. And and the actual captain of that ship, at first he's like, hey, this ship isn't your ship. It can't do the things you do. And then she's piloting it. And he's like, I didn't know my ship could do that. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's also, and I, I wish I remembered character names because I'm the most forgetful. Um, but Link's partner, who is in Zion, and she's loading oh, ammo. Right. Z. Z. Yeah. Um, she's loading ammo and then she's meeting up with the other chick who's got the fucking bazooka gun thing and they're crawling through aqueducts and finding the best tactical point that like, she's literally holding her friend over the edge of this by her belt. And like, I don't know how you can shoot a bazooka like that. I feel like they're both going to fall regardless. (laughs) Some some liberties with that part, but. For sure. Yeah. But I remember watching that scene and being like, yeah, they're going to do it. (laughs) Like I was super pumped for that episode, that scene. And it's them. It's, it's women that change the tide of the war against the machines. A separate from Neo's actual negotiation with them. And mm-hmm. I think that's purely because his code is already enmeshed with the machine code. And so there's already familiarity that makes him the best tangential line between the two as separate entities. That aside, everything else is led or accomplished by women. All the men do is believe. What was that? All the men do, the, all, the only thing they contribute is that they believe. Right. That's it. Yeah. I'm looking at the cast for revolutions again, too. Just as a... A, a lot of these characters, or a lot of these actors don't have a picture. I'm like, oh, that doesn't help me. Additional info. Z was also the sister to Tank and Dozer. Mm-hmm. That was the... Because um, Gina Torres's character, whose name I don't remember, was... Cass. Hmm? Cass. Cass. She was Tank or Dozer's... I guess it would have been Tank's partner. partner. Yeah. Because Tank she, survived. Because uh, Gina Torres' character is the one who's like, I'm taking the kids and I'm getting out of here. You should come with us. Mm-hmm. And uh, and Z is like, no, I got to stay here and like pitch in. Like, if if my if my person's going to survive this, if we're all going to survive this, I I have to do my part. Uh, well, you know, if you had a chance to try to save someone you loved. That's, that she gets a really good speech, um, which is nice because she's not a huge character in, in the the greater sense of the stories. So, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But it was that great reminder of it doesn't matter who you are in this world. If you're in Zion and you're involved in this fight, your voice and your actions are still important. And regardless of who you are, you can still change the tide of this revolution. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, one of my other favorite things that I consistently forget about two and three is uh, the kid in Zion. In, in Zion. The kid. Oh, so I think the character's name is just the kid. He's kid. the fanboy. He's the Neo fanboy. I'm, I would guess, I would hazard a guess that he becomes the first Neoologist. Um, and Cable, you would have missed this if you didn't rewatch 
the animatrix leading into this. So one of the animatrix shorts is about the kid and it's him in school and he's, you know, a weirdo little hacker on the internet and he has no friends and all of his friends are online and he's questioning reality and he's not doing well in school and he's failing his classes and probably everyone's picking on him because he's a loser sort of a thing. But he believes in the matrix so hard. He believes so hard that the matrix is still coming after him, even though he's not really doing anything to upset it. He just believes in it. And at the end of that short, the agents are coming for him and he jumps off a building because he believes that Neo is going to save him from the situation. And what ends up happening is that he's actually the first person in recorded history to self-actualize himself out of the matrix. So he didn't need drugs or a pill or a mere portal to pull him and to help him recognize that there is a, there's a separation, but you can manipulate it. He simply knew and he knew he didn't fit there. He knew there was something else. And he knew that if he believed and he basically took that leap of faith, much like Neo's character keeps trying to do in the fourth movie, if he can just jump off that building, that there will be some truth that's revealed to him. And I love seeing that because he's such an annoying little shit in the movies. <laughs> just like, oh, this kid, just go away. It's like 16. But he is another character that becomes extremely important and pivotal in the survival of humanity in that war. And I, th- I love that now because it's still saying, like, even though this was but 15 years ago that these movies came out, it's still saying like, it's the youth. It's the youth that will know enough about how things don't work, that they will manifest things that do work. Right. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. I I just love that level of the Wachowskis (laughs) then and still now being so aware of cultural realities and sociopolitical realities that they forecast a lot of elements that are still coming into play now with women being at the forefront, women of color, black women leading the charge with kids being the ones that make these changes. And it's the annoying shitheaded pilots and war generals who are sitting there like, we can't do that. And you can't do that. And it's everyone else going, yeah, I fucking can. (laughs) It's almost like the Wachowskis know that one day they are going to age out of the revolution and they just have to sit back and be quiet. They're uh, <clears throat> like the the one leader of Zion, the old guy that's super friendly. Yeah. Just like this cheery old guy hanging out at the it, aqua processing. It's I love him. It, it's like my brain always fucking goes back to Star Trek one time or another. And it's towards the end of Star Trek 6 when Spock says, have you and I grown so old that we can no longer help the future. He's like, would that be so inflexible? It's so inflexible. He's like, would that be a joke? (laughs) You know? (laughs) Um, Yeah. It's like, I mean, me personally, I've, I've told myself when I get to a certain age, I'm just going to shut up and listen. I'll be done. But that's enough. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But that's a whole nother tangent (laughs) for me. I prematurely in my forties realized that I had shifted into away from Buffy and had become Giles. Um, 
I think I'm more Giles now because I also know when to go. Some of the shit you've got to just figure out for on your own. Yeah. I could tell you, but it's not going to help. Yeah. You and you're to, like, you're going to get hurt and I'll be there to, to fail on your own. Yeah. I'll be there to be patch you up and bring you, bring you tea and coffee and some tasty scones. I'll make mm-hmm. you soup. I'll help you heal, but yeah, you're going to have to take the hit on this one. I can't tell you. I, that's I right. That's, mind you. <laughs> I think that's the most important thing that anyone in our generation can do is realize when you have stopped being the one and started being the one that helps facilitate the one. Like you have to know when you're the Morpheus, you have to know when you've become Giles, you, you have to, and, or yeah, you're, you're the guide. You're not the, you're not the hero and that's fine. We're not all the main character. No. Um, And even if you were, at some point, you no longer are. You have yeah. to hand over the reins eventually. Yeah, you are still the the lead character of your own story, and that is never going to change. Um, but in the grand scale of us all being part of the same community, um, you do have to find which role suits you best. And like, like these movies have been saying. Believe in the new ideas of the youth because they want to do things differently than have ever done before. Change is hard. The best thing you can do is get the fuck out of its way. (laughs) Uh, I was going to mention that uh, to Merrick that the kids story is the only, the only story from the animatrix that I did remember very clearly because of, like seeing the kid come on screen, I'm like, oh yeah, he did this and he found this and did this. And, uh, you know, the whole reference between Neo's dialogue to him in Reloaded is like, no kid, you saved yourself. I didn't save you. You did it. Right. And, and he's right. Like everything that he attributed to Neo, the kid did for himself. But he needed, in order to do that, he needed to believe in something bigger than himself. Well, and when you look at Smith's trajectory, his character arc, he in the first film is talking about how humans are a virus and they're just going to infest everything and infect it with their stink. And then by the third movie, he is the virus and he he's talking about how there's no point in humanity and the only thing that humanity is good for is dying. But when you have taken over all of humanity to the point that you are actually all of humanity yourself then you have already ascribed that your only function is to die. And so it was always forecast by Smith himself that he was not going to win that particular war that he thought he was fighting, that he was always destined to, his story was going to end. He wasn't the main character he thought he was either. And then I love his evolution and revolutions, or resurrections, sorry, where he's like, I'm actually more than, than that. I'm more than what I started as. I'm more than what I started as. I'm more than what was created once I merged with Neo. And I'm definitely more than what the analyst thinks I'm worth. Mm-hmm. Like he is, he, he definitely found his own path and went, Oh, I, I was thinking about the maturity of the AI and that the AI has started to in the matrix universe in the course of 
these 20 years have evolved, started to evolve into civilizations. Um, and they did it within like a 120 year span versus the 7,000 years it took humanity. So right. it, they're, they're finally getting to the same playing field. And that's why the machines, the way I view it is are starting to go, you know what? Maybe these humans aren't as bad as we think they are. Right. And maybe we have more in common with them than we thought. Um, I loved in revolutions, the <clears throat> talking about the train station, the meeting of, um, Oh no, I've forgotten the character's name. Uh, we meet the little girl. Sati. And then, hmm? Sati. Sati. Yeah. Who comes back in resurrections. Um, but when we meet his father, his dialogue where, where he says that he loves his daughter and Neo's reaction of like, you understand love. He's like, love is a word. It's a word that you made up. <laughs> I know what this feeling is. And you created that word for that feeling, but it's the same feeling. It doesn't matter what you call it. It is the same thing. And he says the same thing about karma. It's like, uh. <laughs> I loved how that, like re being able to see that scene and then applying that to the whole of the matrix helps reprogram my viewpoint of it. It's like, and, and the viewpoint of the world, it's like, these are just words. The, the feelings are the same. Mm -hmm disparate um, sentient beings uh, aside, they are still feeling the same things. And, and it's neat to know that the machines are evolving in a way where they can start to respect that as well. And I think that was the whole point of resurrections was showing the hope of we can all evolve out of destroying one another. Yeah. In, in the animatrix, there is another short that delves into the history of the machines and how the machine revolution started and what instigated that. And it was basically mistreatment from humans uh, because they didn't believe that the machines could ever be equal to humans on any regard. And one of the things that stood out to me rewatching that is that they talk about the machine city that the machines established to live separate from humanity when they were ostracized from humanity. And the machine city was called zero one. And obviously uh, binary code is a huge presence in the mm -hmm. matrix in terms of like, here's a clue of something you should be paying attention to. Like Neo's apartment, Mr. Anderson's apartment was one zero one. Um, so you've got the machine city that's zero one. You've got the original Zion, uh, which is Z I O N. You've got the resurrected city, which is the combination of the machine and man, which is called IO. So IO is the opposite of zero one, but mm -hmm. is also a refinement of Zion. And I, like I that. never put that together. Nice. Yeah. Merrick, you should produce a paranormal talk show. <laughs> this is the she shit that we live for. 
She has conspiracy. What we don't know is that on the other side of this camera in front of Merrick, she's got a bulletin board with, you know, all the different pictures and scraps of paper and <clears throat> string attached all over oh, the place. What oh, I was yeah. going to say I'm, is what I'm we so don't on. What I was going to say is that what we don't know and she has to mind wipe cable every morning is at night she peels off her human face and there's a lizard. <laughs> and then every she doesn't morning have to she wipe mind my memory wipes cable. That. Just bam. Yeah, it's really good. He's a lizard. Water. Yeah. <laughs> Once I take that eyeliner off, man, it's just like third eyelids. Ah. <laughs> uh, no, these are things that I have been thinking about since the Matrix came out. So, and then and then they add a new chapter to it, and all of those little fireworks, all those synapses start firing again, and pew pew, start making the connections. For yeah, sure. So- um, I don't really, I can't say that I did any rewatching of any of the matrices besides when they, they all first came out, except for, for sure. I never saw the animated stuff and I'm like just iffy on the, on two and three. Like maybe I saw two, but not three. I was doing other, other stuff. I was not watching a lot of movies in 2003. Um, but so in rewatching them, one of the things that I know, had note, I noticed that I didn't when the movies were new is like just how fucking hardcore, like, I don't think like religious is the right word, but definitely like very, like a lot of spiritual concepts that they're always sort of hammering in, like Cable was saying, like, that like, movies don't know how to be subtle or, or movies, movie makers are not permitted to be subtle. And so, it's it's so it's super overt, you know, and like the stuff with the oracle. That part had never really made sense to me. And like, why? If it's you know, like there's the the code and the computer stuff, and all of this is very like digital and and rigid in the way that computer stuff is. And then there's the real world, which is like the uncovering of this this big lie. Where does all this spiritualism come from? Man, because it's always presented that man's the one that's got the the most hardcore belief system. So I think that's why they're still falling back to the most male of all the religions. <laughs> it's the most patriarchal religion. And that's why there's so much Christianity overlay is because that's the easiest way to make those comparisons in our particular culture where this movie was produced in. I actually sort of wondered, and if I were a better podcast host, I would have like maybe looked into it more, but I'm like, I wonder if the Wachowskis grew up really religious and this is their way of like, I mean, obviously not an indictment of religion, but just their way of reconciling uh, a non-religious lifestyle with a religious upbringing. You find those ways to make parallels and to make it your own, but also find the strength in it and forego the toxicity. Because, mm-hmm. I mean, like certainly there are philosophical elements of most religions that aren't toxic. Mm-hmm. It's, it's, it's mostly the structural patriarchal shit that, that ruins it for you. <laughs> Just like I said, this is the spot we're going to put in an ad. First up, of course, our sponsor, Bridge City Comics. Uh, they are one of Portland's greatest comic book shops. You can find them over at 37... Oh my God, why did my brain just go... Oh, jeez. 3725 North Mississippi Avenue 
in Portland, Oregon. Uh, Saga just came out, uh, or at least the return of Saga, issue uh, 55, is now out and on the shelves, and Bridge City Comics has a whole bunch of them. So, um, yeah, if you uh, if you miss uh, the, the the Amazing Story of Brian K. Vaughn and Fiona Staples, well, it is back. Looks like it's done a little leap forward in time. So after a couple years, Saga's back. Get it at Bridge City Comics. Uh, you can also uh, rever- <laughs> reserve Season of the Bruja Issue 1 at Bridge City Comics as well, or you can visit them online at bridgecitycomics.com. And before we get back, our next sponsor, our longest sponsor, our oldest sponsor, Guardian Games 345 Southeast Taylor Street in Portland, Oregon. They're going through a, a slight remodel that you heard Cable talk about on the show here a little bit. I have seen some pictures, and it looks pretty cool. Like, I like this little divide now. It allows for more open gaming, more magic playing, stuff like that. It creates a nice little interesting flow for the store. So check them out, 345 Southeast Taylor Street in Portland, Oregon. Guardian Games, as always, they have all the board games, RPGs, cards, anything you could want for solo play, competitive play, cooperative play, online play. It's all there at Guardian Games, 345 Southeast Taylor Street in Portland, Oregon. And when you're there, thank them for being a sponsor of Geek in the City Radio. Although I will say one thing that does not sit great with me in in rewatching is is the Oracle herself. I'm like, Oh, right. Mystical black woman who has, I mean, not technically has all the answers, but, you know, she's just got this above and beyond power that everyone, like, goes to her for for that resource, essentially. I, I, oh, go ahead. Go ahead. I would definitely agree with you on the mystical, elderly, kind, black auntie vibe, and also the uh, spiritual karma discussion of people from the Middle East suddenly showing up and they're core engineer coders and they have a little family that's trying to immigrate their daughter by smuggling her. Like did, Oh, did you? Okay. That's, that was a choice that they made in 2003. (laughs) And at some point you have to wonder like, do do the Wachowskis, do Lana, does Lana look at this now and go, that was a little insensitive of us. Like everyone grows, everyone says dumb things at some point does dumb things. And so I'd like to think that both of them have progressed beyond that little bit of cultural cliches that they interjected into some otherwise lovely concepts. Yeah. I mean, we've all had those moments and we, we try to grow from it. I, I cringe when I look at stuff that I read that I wrote from like 2001 to 2005. It's I would all... not like to be held to my 2003 <sighs> to 2005 opinion. Let's see. 2002 Aaron was 24, I think, or something. And <laughs> was still getting out of his like libertarian phase and was, newly single and was listening to Tom Light. He was not a, he was a piece of shit. I'll just say it. Um, yeah, he started, I think around that era, I started to evolve, but I've gone back. Uh, for those of you who want to, you can actually find old geek in the city articles and they're not mean, but goddamn, are they just, 
aggro and ridiculous and little cringe, little cringy, a little broy, like nerd broy. Remember when the whole point of being a geek was to be angry at everything? Yeah, that was me. Glad he's not around anymore. Yay. I'm also glad that Bendis is a very forgiving person. That's a whole nother. <laughs> yeah, that, that seems like a pretty deep tangent we might go down. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Cable, yeah. okay, you had a question. Yeah, I'm trying to remember what it was now. It may have escaped me, and, and that's fine. <laughs> um, I want to interject one other color thing that I noticed rewatching the third movie. So Denise, you, you brought up the color theory of the mm-hmm. movies and it's definitely, yes, red, blue, green, like red is always passion in human life. Blue is kind of the opposite of that. Cause it's, you've got red and blue arteries sort of a thing is always how I viewed it. Whereas green is artificial. It's not found in the human body. Um, there is, they also use yellow a lot. I will say, um, Especially in the first few movies, yellow is used to denote agents. Uh, The lining of their jackets is yellow. And like on the couch in Resurrections, on the therapist's couch, there's yellow pillows. So there's weird little interjections of yellow throughout the series. But the thing that I noticed in rewatching three in uh, Revolution, Revolutions, um, in the scene late in the movie where Neo has been blinded and Trinity is piloting the ship and they're heading towards the machine city. So they're heading towards zero one and they push They're They're being swarmed by senators and they push above the clouds to get a clearer path to their destination. And as we crest that storm bank and we go above the gray stormy clouds into where the sun is touching. So a very common lighting convention in modern movies right now and TV is bisexual lighting, right? You got, you got blue and you got purple, right? That scene where they crest the cloud bank and they are being touched by the sun for the first time, the actual sun, that is distinctly transsexual lighting. Mm -hmm. And if you go back and you freeze it, it's like, not even five seconds that they are in that cloudscape, but it is baby pink and Robin's egg blue and white. And I'm like, y'all, I saw that. Yeah, they stopped being subtle. I feel like a long time <laughs> I ago. Didn't, I it's didn't right there. That. Um, we, I was I was mostly focused on the fact that like no one in this in this world has ever seen the sky, I think. Like, they all just live, you know, like, deep in the bowels of the earth and hiding from the machines. And it's this, you know, extremely dystopian um, way of living. And uh, like, you've never you've never seen this this spectacle on the screen of, of a Matrix film. Mm-hmm. You see it um, in the Animatrix, because I, I think that they kind of they don't really prescribe to those same conventions of like the matrix world is this color scheme and the real world is this color scheme. Uh, so you get some much more natural lighting in there. But aside from that, mm-hmm. yeah, it's like the first and only time you ever see like the real sky in that, that, you know, lighter and those lighter, brighter colors in the sun. Um, and then again in resurrections, 
did not think about the whole uh, bisexual lighting, though. You're right. Well, and it's it's not bisexual lighting. Transsexual use. Yeah. And I checked and the, the transsexual flag first started, it was designed in 1999 and its first use appeared in 2000. Um, and then Matrix Revolutions was 2003. So I I would, given how much detail and attention they paid to all the other use of color throughout the movies, I would hazard a guess that that was pretty intentional from them. Like, oh, when you finally break through the storm and you're in the light and you you have a clear view of your destination, there it is. That's that's when you see who you are. By the way, I'm going to just go ahead and admit that um, I was today years old when I realized that it's called bisexual and transsexual lighting because it is the colors of their actual flags. Yeah. Mm. The last horse crosses the finish line. <laughs> There's time. There's always time. <laughs> I do remember what I was going to mention. Uh, this harkens back to using the tropes of um, the, the mystical Negro and the, that sort of thing. I feel as though that they were, I don't know. I'm sure that those tropes already existed, but we weren't referencing them as tropes quite yet because we didn't have tropes.com. Um, Is that a real website? Tro- yeah. Yeah. EVtropes.com. Oh. Mm-hmm. I didn't know. Um, it, it's one of the best and worst things that happened to the internet. Um, <laughs> because it, it makes it, everyone. It, sound like it, they, they're an expert on film theory. Anyway. It does come uh, in handy sometimes as a writer where I could look up like, is this a trope? It is. Is this trope? Can I use it against me or for me? So, mm-hmm. yeah. uh, that said, I think that they were trying to, like this speaks more to the intention of the Wachowskis at the time. Given that the populace of Zion was predominantly people of color. Mm-hmm. Um, there, I, I feel as though that the intent was to say that an all white majority was not the future, even a dystopian. Um, and that, especially if you like, and we've, I think we've had this conversation on this podcast before. Oh, what's going on tonight? This is, uh, hey, there I am. They're onto us. Well, I had had to go to use the little Neo's room, so I made myself way on purpose, but I don't know why that happened. Um, I don't know why it happened. Um, I mean, we know why. We will not be silenced. No, we know why. It's because the Matrix itself Mm -hmm. is reprogramming something. So if anyone experienced any deja vu, that's what's going on. Um, Fuck, I got derailed from my point. God damn it. The fact True. that you just said, if anyone experienced deja vu, I, my brain literally went like, I've had this conversation before. Uh, the future is melanated. The future is melanated. Um, <laughs> Hell yeah, it is. Fuck. Gross. Nope. That's it. We're out. Yeah. No, yeah, I, I, it's not, it's not. How did Manju get over there? <laughs> right. What are you doing? Well, you know what? Let's take this weird glitch. This will be a good spot. 
to have an ad from our sponsors. Which sponsors are those? That's it. I just wanted a place to put an ad break. Yeah, oh. that's pretty much <laughs> products. That's where I'm. I'm channeling uh, behind the bastards there in that moment. So mm-hmm. that's it. And we're products! back. And products. We're back. <laughs> okay, there you go. That was a hell of a segue. Yeah. Uh, shoot, I still don't remember. Who is... I yeah. I mean, we can read the chat where Norm's talking about Matrix porn. Uh, <laughs> we could. Uh, but I actually feel like that's the lowest of hanging fruit. There's a lot of leather, skin-tight, sexy people. Yeah, and that, to me, that is now secondary to what the messages of these movies are. It me. is and it isn't. Oh, um, because leather culture is born distinctly out of uh, American military suppression of gay culture within troops. And that then when they would get away from their military service and to a place that they could be themselves, that a lot of gay people would adopt a heavy leather look. Aesthetic. Aesthetic attire uh, to denote like, hey, here's me. Here's who I am. And it would align them in this regard. And so the choice of leaning on fetish wear and leather wear is very much saying we are very counterculture and we are a counterculture that is born directly from gay oppression. That makes sense. Mm -hmm. Again, like not something that anyone probably would have put together when the matrix first hit the scene, but now knowing what we know about the Wachowskis, da doy. Yeah. Well, and when you see the more and more people that you see from Zion broadcasting back into the matrix, like by the third movie, we've accrued quite a gamut of characters who are moving back and forth between those two realms. And not everyone in the third movie is wearing those hard leathers or the trench coats or the shiny black vinyl. Like some of them are wearing full ox blood outfits Mm. or like in the first one, was it, Oh gosh, I can't remember her name. Uh, the really cool character in all white, like switch with the yeah. Yeah, switch. I heard a piece of trivia that that character was supposed to be, (laughs) I believe female in the real world and male in the, um, in the Matrix, but then, I don't know, for whatever reason, it was not cast that way. Production companies. Yeah, I, I think that like, was really right they put a like... kibosh on it. They're like, yeah, we're not going to do that. So I, I think that uh, the clothing choices do remain pivotal to the plot and to the characters. Um, it's just that we've moved away as gay culture and gay lifestyles have become more mainstream thankfully, like people are able to live themselves to their truest expression of who they want to be, uh, that becomes less counterculture. And so it's, it feels more normal to us. And then when the counterculture becomes normalized, what becomes counterculture? And it's still normcore to Mm. a degree. Yeah. And you've got just a guy wearing a business suit and some nice glasses and bleached hair. And you've got this chick with cool colored hair and sunglasses and a black black leather coat sort of a thing. And it's like it's much more casual in the fourth movie because we don't need to use clothing as much of a signaler of who we are or what we're about. Mm-hmm. But you're right. It doesn't it's not the same look. 
doesn't feel the same. Yeah. Doesn't feel as monumental as it did in that first movie when we see Trinity's from that <laughs> back view for the first time with her hands up in the hacker room. <laughs> and you're like, whoa. Doing, scorp- Hello there. doing scorpion kicks. Yes, All those I scorpion would... kicks and like praying mantis poses. I would like to know more. <laughs> oh, you're actually... bothering me. Why, are, why am I? In <laughs> Although there was, I definitely had a thing for it, not to, not to trivialize stuff, but I definitely had a thing for these characters in quote, the real world with their like torn sweater cardigans and kind of sweaty and diesel punk looking. I was like, mm, hello. How and are what you colors all? are we seeing there? We're seeing creams. A lot of earth tones too. Earth tones. We're seeing deep red, like mm. vegetable based dyes. So mm. classic. It's, it's all still there. Opian, uh... Oh, there's a, there's a, there's a f- term for that fashion style. Now I'm not going to, it's it's like a, a post apocalyptic something something like uh, I don't know I was gonna say diesel punk but it's not quite that that's where my brain went to Merrick was diesel yeah. punk yeah by way of like Final Fantasy VII which is kind of my benchmark for that kind of like grungy futuristic look I, that's kind of where my brain got you know targeted at. Yeah, there's a term for it, Ian. I just don't remember what it is either. My brain will only give me Strega, Strega fashion, but that's not quite right. Sounds cool. Sounds cool. Those are vampires. Yes. I'm in. <laughs> no, Strega means witch. Yeah. I th- oh, never which, mind. I'm like, thinking of for some else. of us, it's the same thing. But yeah. Yeah, I'm for- I'm thinking of something else. I'm thinking of a Ravenloft monster that's called Strigas. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Who are vampires? <laughs> Yeah. Uh, Ida says cottagecore. Um, that's very. Like, but you know what? Let's we could call it like dystopian cottagecore. You know, like your, your cozy earth tones, but also it's it's a handmade world where you know, like H and M doesn't exist anymore. Mm-hmm. Not handmade. It's hand mended. Yeah. Like they're just trying to hang on to fa- scraps of fabric and keep them alive as long as they it's can. like. When I was in yeah. high school, I used to have this big overcoat that I loved. And every time it got tore, I wouldn't use regular cloth or thread to fix it. I would literally punch bigger holes. Like if the sleeve got torn off, I would punch holes in it and reattach it with like old shoes, like old um, shoe. Um, uh, shoelaces? Shoelaces. To where eventually this jacket looked like a big old Frankenstein patchwork. I wore that till it disintegrated. To this day, I'm like. That jacket looked cool. Hey, man, I, I wore the <laughs> Matrix final trench coats that I got in high school until they disintegrated, too. Yep. Anytime was... I think about Matrix fashion, I am um, I can't not think about uh, a later episode of Broad City where um, Alana believes that she's about to come into a bunch of um, a bunch of money from like. Like like some bo- some guy that she hooked up with like gave gave her like crypto or something like that and so now she's ready to go cash in on it but first she has to go to a a sex shop where she gets she's like basically like I want the Matrix and she walks out of there looking like Trinity times ten yeah um I can't watch is- the I can't watch Broad City anymore it hurts too much how much I see myself in that show. <laughs> And I see Bean and I in that show. 
Aww. our most destructive parts of ourselves are that show. You don't need to watch it. You live it. Minus the weed. Right, minus the weed. We do live it. For real. <laughs> okay. This is not I, the first time they've said this. I wanted to go on a tangent um, about the fighting styles in the Matrix and specifically something that I noticed on a rewatch of the fourth movie. Um, so, and I said, this is a tangent. So the other day I was out for a while and I came home and Cable was watching Matrix 3 and he was like up around doing stuff and not watching the movie. And I'm like, what are you doing? <laughs> and he's like, well, I, I've been doing stuff during the action scenes because there's less to watch. And then I can pay attention to the dialogue scenes where stuff is happening. And I think that is such a criminal treatment of these movies where so much is told about the characters through their physical motions especially mm. in fight scenes. And you see so much character growth through the fight scenes. Like they put those tiny cues into like Neo's fighting style. And it's always the thing that he does, you know, that's like, that's the, the mention. That's the click of, okay, Neo is on his shit now. And mm -hmm. you're not gonna, you're, you're gonna go down on this one. Um, but there is a scene in the fourth movie and the fourth movie was particularly interesting to me because especially with that early presentation of uh, Thomas Anderson's modal program, where we're seeing Trinity and that initial cell phone in the apartment building or the, the ringing telephone landline. And it's not Trinity, but it is Trinity. It's the concept of her and seeing how they tried to reproduce that fight but they didn't do it quite the same like she doesn't do the running wall kick in the modal program but right. she does the raise up and some kicking things but it's still never quite carrie and moss's trinity and later on after uh thomas and tiffany have met in the coffee shop and then they're talking for a second time and tiffany is talking about how she showed her husband chad the game and was and how she felt like so aligned with the game and was like well don't you think that this character of trinity looks like me and that her husband laughed and was like yeah i guess so whatever and how she got so mad about that and she said that it made her so mad all she wanted to do was just kick him and kick his jaw off and she was pissed about it and you would think that I'm going to say, and then at the end of the movie, she kicks the dude's jaw off. No, there is the scene where Neo first meets Smith in the um, warehouse, the multi-level warehouse where they have that yeah. big fight with uh, Hope. The motorcycle Merovingian. shop? No, no, the, the decrepit building where the Merovingian shows up again in his rags and right. his, his crew comes in. And then Smith shows up and Smith and Neo are down fighting in the basement. Neo does Trinity's move. And you, you wouldn't notice it unless you are very familiar with those particular fight scenes and with that dialogue. But Neo does the run up around the corner of the wall 
lands, kicks Smith in the jaw. He doesn't kick him hard enough to kick his jaw off, but he does it. He does exactly Trinity's move. And I can't remember what Smith said. Smith said something about like, you know, that was, that was a good trick or whatever. Right. And, and Neo was like, thanks. But you know that in his head, Neo is like, it's not mine. I learned it from Trinity. Right. And it's very much, I thought that was a great moment for that movie because it shows that Neo is not acting as the one anymore. He is simply an elevated being, but he is fully aware that he is not alone in his abilities or his capacity to enact change, that he is now looking to the most important woman in his life and seeing what kind of leadership or guidance that she has for him. And he is putting that into direct play in his interactions in the matrix. And I absolutely love that tiny little thing because it's such a throwaway thing because he doesn't even kick the jaw off, but right. it's definitely it, Trinity. And it's also cool when you realize that when they were doing promotions leading up to this, um, Keanu Reeves, not at all hid the fact they're like, Oh, Neo's back. He repeatedly said, he's like, yeah, Neo's back. It's not my movie. He's like, it's Trinity's movie. He's like, Trinity is finally getting her due in this film. He's like, Carrie Ann Moss is getting what she should have always had. Mm-hmm. So even like Keanu, and I'm sure he spoke with, you know, he's, he's you know, I'm sure he didn't make this up on his own. He's not an I, idiot. He's not an idiot. I like that he was like straight up being like, it's, Neo has had his time. Mm-hmm. And it didn't work. So now it's mm-hmm. Trinity's turn. This is Trinity's movie. Well, and to, and to your point, Denise, about the heavy uh, Christian Catholic vibes, especially with Neo's uh, father coat. What I, I can't remember what that kind of a coat is called. Um, uh, the oh, the cassock. Yes. Cassock, yeah. He, he's wearing that style of coat by the end of the third movie. And by the end of the fourth movie, Trinity is wearing her own version of that where it's the high collar with the clean line down the front and it's all the way to the floor. And it's the same cut in terms of its shape and its movement, but it's fitted to her. Um, and I really love that little nod too, to when Neo ascended and when Neo became the one, he got his priest coat and now Trinity has a priest coat. That was a really good touch. I'd almost forgotten about that. Yeah. Yeah. And so now you have the one and you have the three. I hadn't even really considered that because I remember watching, you know, watching the, what was it? What is it? Three or is it two where he starts wearing the cassock? It it might be in two. Yeah. I I think it's two. He starts in two, but three, he's got it pretty much the whole time, I think. Yeah. And... Right, because in in the, in one he's just wearing like a suit, so he's not even like being cool leather daddy like everyone else, um, because he's still sort of figuring his shit out. Um, he specifically is never leather. No, yeah, Morpheus yeah. is leather. Trinity okay. is PVC. He is all natural fiber. Ah, I wouldn't. They are that. three very they're hmm? fibers, but that's a lot of polyester. Oh, okay, but well, I mean, they did not have a great it, budget for costuming in the first movie, so I I, 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 I don't read, know. I read a thing. I read a thing. I looked at that and saw that that is a very deliberate choice because mm-hmm. they were 
all three of those uh, fabrics have different properties and different connotations. Mm-hmm. So uh, one one could say that like they're wearing man-made clothes too, man-made fibers, mm. except mm. for Morpheus who wears leather. And then by the third movie, Morpheus has also kind of self-actualized through realigning himself with his purpose through the modal. Like he, he became reborn again and is now a uh, sen- What do they call them? Sentience? Sentience. Yeah. Sentience. The, yeah, the right. Sense, yeah. like sense, sentience. Um, and he's he's back wearing leather when he's in the Matrix, mm. even though he's not human anymore, but it's still his soul somehow. Yeah, that's a good point. I hadn't thought about that. Mm. Yeah, I, I didn't. It didn't occur to me that the cassock is is more or less, for the most part, a like a religious garb. Um, I, I, I all I had noticed was like that's a weird choice when everyone also, else is dressed like a badass and you're dressed like a priest. And also, it's not even regular religious garb the actual by definition the cossack priestly robes are worn by they're they've been adapted but they're initially worn by russian orthodox catholics mm-hmm. who are very much old school catholics yes. like even before the like i knew people growing up that's that followed the old russian orthodox calendar and it's not the Gregorian calendar. Like they're forever, like their Christmas is 16 days later. So it's mm-hmm. even more so it's a super old school throwback to a very strict religious order, like super Catholics, mm-hmm. which is mm-hmm. weird to say, super Catholics. <laughs> Flying through the sky. <laughs> Hardcore Catholics. Yeah, 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 yeah. So. But then I love I love that fashion juxtaposition against Neo being the one and Trinity being the three. And like, mm-hmm. Aaron, you were mentioning the very uh, symbolic. They, they put a lot of spiritual symbolism and occult symbolism into it. And so it's like now you've got the triple goddess and yeah. the single follower. And like neither one of them could have existed without the other. So they they both created each other. Mm-hmm. Right. And as much as they created themselves. Yeah. Um, yeah, and then there's a whole. This is a whole other topic we could dive into. The whole aspect of who the Merovingian is within old Catholic doctrine, and then you're getting into Jesus and, and Persephone <laughs> and Jesus and Mary Magdalene having kids because they totally got married. We got to be careful though. All we all we turn into Dan Brown, which no one wants. Um, but, I do uh, love that in the third movie, the Merovingians nightclub, that's like super hardcore industrial goth kink scene nightclub is mm-hmm. called hell and ah. it's hell with one L. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So they, they go down the elevator into hell. I love that. Right. Which is not a punishment. <laughs> it's just another place of existence before you can traverse. I mean, to a degree, it's a choice for them too. Yeah. Yeah. So. Yeah. Oh, sometimes I miss doing paranormal radio. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> um, yeah. I mean, what else do we want to? We're going a little bit over, but I don't care. I sent a message to everybody saying if we want to make on a longer show, it's cool. 
Um, oh, did, not, did not see any of that. No, that's fine. Uh, yeah, I mean, what are some of the other aspects we want to play around with? Or have we tired it out? Uh, I think the only other notes that I had, um, one was I very much appreciate the, the quote from Morpheus 2.0, which is, uh, now, well, now I have to bring it up. Um, <laughs> what is it? Cause it's real good. It's a good quote. Nothing comforts anxiety like a little nostalgia. Boy, that, has that been true? That is that Ooh. is true. Like, and I, and I felt that, that fact. Yeah, yeah, I felt like that was a distillation of what we've discovered on a planetary level. Yeah, um, I remember when when Jen and I first watched this movie, however many weeks ago, and it came out. That line came up. We both went, <laughs> you know. Um, I also appreciate how much is made of the power of choice throughout the trilogy. But in Resurrections, I feel like it is taken to a different level in that it is brought up frequently. People are given a choice and yet Morpheus 2.0 makes the observation of it's like, your choice is this or this. And he's like, which to be truthful is not a choice. And it felt very much like the, the message that was being put across is it's not about the choices that you were given or the choices that, that are made. It's by, if you have acknowledged the truth of your own identity, your choices are already made. You have made the choice by being who you are. And that identifies every choice that you're going to make when, with, whenever you're presented with a choice. You already know those decisions. You don't have to think about it. And when I was rewatching Reloaded, I think that came up with the Oracle. She brought up, it's like, you didn't come here for guidance about what to do with the, you know, what choice to make. You already made your choice. Right. You knew that coming in. It's like when you when you flip a penny to make a decision, it's not as much what the actual result of the penny is. It's that split second of it not being your choice anymore. And what do you really wish the choice would be? Oh, you beat me to it. That you know, like, <laughs> like you, you, the moment you that coin goes into the air, you know, you know, you know now. And yeah. so, like, it almost doesn't matter what it lands on because you're not gonna you're not gonna follow the edict of the coin. It was all just a a push over the edge to make you see it. Which completely separate thing. That's what makes Two-Face so sociopathic is because he <laughs> will go by the coin and it's not at all choice. He does leave it purely to chance in as mm -hmm. much as the coin is two sides of the same thing. So nice job right. bringing it back to a comic. <laughs> yeah. Very well done. Yeah. Um, and then there's in the Oracle's kitchen, she has a sign over the door but I always forget what it says. It's Temet, what is it? Temet Nostre? Mm -hmm. Temet Noske, which is know thyself. Yeah. If you know yourself, then there is no choice because it simply is. I feel like my favorite part of the Oracle is that she won't talk to Neo until he accepts a cookie. 
No, that's not right. The cookie is at the end. Because she's like, take the cookie. You'll by you know, like, and by the time you it's... walk out of here, you're going to feel better. Yeah, because the the cookie is how your system remembers where you just went. It's it's a browser joke. It's a browser joke. You know, do you accept cookies from this website? Yeah. And now they're tracking you. Yeah. I feel like Denise is very annoyed by that fact now. And then in the third movie, she's making cookies with Satie and Neo shows up and she's like, oh, I was hoping to have these done by the time you showed up. Mm-hmm. <laughs> take, take them to Seraph, see if they're ready. <laughs> right. Nice. Yeah. I had completely forgotten about the character of Seraph and was so happy to see him. It's like, oh, right. You were really cool. Were you supposed to have been Jet Li? Yeah. Right? Mm. You, totally, you totally get that vibe. Yes. Yeah. And it was Jet nice Li- to see... Go ahead. Oh. Sorry. I think Jet Li was supposed to be in the fourth movie, right? Or maybe it was that same actor returning as Seraph, but he didn't agree to do it because he didn't want to go through the motion capture recording all of his movements so that they could program in fights. They that he was like, well, that's who I am is my fighting. And if you turn that into a programmable puppet, then there's no point in me. That was, so, that was, that was Jet Li who said that. Yeah. Um, apparently years ago, someone wanted to record Jet Li do all of his moves. And he's like, no, because it'll stop being me. Yep. And then just physically Jet Li is not able to do stuff anymore. He has a, a, a physical issue. Hmm. Yeah. His physical health, um, something happened with him and it debilitated fast. That's why he is as immobile as he is when we saw him last in the live action Mulan. Yeah. And he looks very different. Yeah. He's, yeah. He's got a physical issue. He and Jackie Chan are of similar ages and Jet Li looks far older than Jackie Chan does right now. And Jackie Chan looks his age. So. Yeah. 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 Well, that's sad. <laughs> yeah. Well, now I feel bad. We're ending it on a downer note here. Aww. Uh, okay. Uh, we don't. My my ender question would be: Which character would you cosplay and why? <sighs> I don't know. I mean, that's always been one of my own personal things with the Matrix. When you are a when you're a person of size, it is hard to find fashion that fits you. Mm-hmm. Um, that doesn't cost an extra arm and a leg from the fat tax of that is literally applied to anything that goes over an XL. Um, yep. So. Valid. So you'd be an OC. Obviously, mm-hmm. you're a writer. You'd be an original character. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I don't know, man. Um I mean, I love Lawrence Fishburne, so I'd probably find a Morpheus outfit. Like, Morpheus is, like, his OG, like, what is it, a snakeskin jacket or an alligator skin? That jacket he wears. The purple? Yeah. With the little barber's cuffs? Yeah, yeah, that's the one. That's the one for me. That was Lawrence Fishburne's personal interjection onto the character's style, is that he decided that when, when Morpheus was plugged into the Matrix, that his character, that his person, whatever, was a, uh, was a barber. And so that's why he wore the little barber oh, sleeves. Oh, that's cool. Is because that's just what Lawrence Fishburne decided. Sleeve barber? Well, 
Yeah. If Lawrence Fishburne decided it, then you let it happen. Yeah. I can see that. Uh, yeah, cool. That'd yeah. Pretty uh, styling. I dig it. Plus, purple's my favorite color, so. Yeah. I think you have a lot of purple in your wardrobe already. I do. I don't wear it enough, though. But mm-hmm. I do. I should. Should. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> this feels like an easy answer to your question, Merrick, but I would say zero. That's cheating. From the logos. Yeah, <laughs> Which one is zero? Zero is Niobe's second in command. He's oh. also in the video game Enter the Matrix. Ah. I th- I think that's why. I think during the heyday of the Matrix, he was the, the character that I could identify with because he was the first. Sorry, he's not the first Asian who's on the screen because Keanu is. Um, but yeah, I, I go with zero. Nice. Deep cut. I guess I'd have to go with Trinity, but not the original Trinity, like the modern Trinity, because I'm pretty sure at this point I'm closer to Carrie Ann Moss's current age than, you know, in the original Matrix. And um, oh, okay. I know, I've never <laughs> have and probably never will have the bo- the body for head-to-toe PVC. Uh, although, I don't know, I bet if I tried hard enough, I could I could, I could learn a scorpion kick. Let if, me give, give me six months and we'll see. Spanx has PVC pants, and it'll take you half an hour to get into them, but they're very effective. I so. used to have <laughs> I used to have PVC pants that I would wear with other things, yeah. and as long as I kept standing, I looked good. But I couldn't sit. I would do like that half wall lean of they're like, you should sit down. Like, no, I'm good. <laughs> you know. Yeah, I'm like I'm not gonna get. But I did look good. Wasteland. <laughs> you know. Well, I'm not gonna get you graphic, got that coat on. I don't. Uh, I don't yeah. Uh, Spanx really are not enough anymore. Wow, oh, come. Like they just like. No, no. I need like the vice grip equivalent of a Spanx at this point. If I, last time I tried a pair of Spanx on, it did the thing at the top like nylons do, where it just rolled right back down. And then I had this nice little like inner tube roll across my midsection. I'm like, this is. Ugh, that not makes you it. feel good, right? That's, that's a good feeling. I had enough rolls, I thought, but here's one more. Um, well, now we're, it's because we're just, we're just old <laughs> Matrix Revolutionaries now. That's, well, that's a lot why, of trench coats like, that's for why... all of us. Her new look in, in Resurrections is like is fine. Like you know what, yeah. I can still wear some tight jeans, and I'm down with like a motorcycle jacket, or maybe just like you know, like a, like a nice cotton t-shirt, and and then just some like kick punching, you know, some Apostle Casual. Yeah. Yes, I do feel like that. That was part of the message of Resurrections is it has less to do with what you look like and more to do with what what you do. In the, you know, with the matrix, with the power that you have, That's- which is which is the perfect message to send your fan base twenty years later. Yeah, yeah. That's that's why part of me always likes the whole the Star Wars aesthetic: Jedi's and Sith robes, loose fitting clothing, and robes. We just all walk around in cloaks and robes. It's a lot <laughs> easier to do a big kick like that in a fucking. Robe, man, some tunic. It is like, and also ow. aesthetically, if you have to throw down the act of going, 
and throwing a robe off looks cool. Like you're Gandalf the Grey turning into Gandalf the White. Like, that's some impressive shit. Yeah, but you need the collar to be stiff so that you can do that cool neck pop before you go into the fight. I do love a stiff collar. Yeah. 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 Well, Denise, you get the the cool cassock, the cool fitted flow. I think I could pull off a cassock. I think so. I have one. Oh, you do? I've seen that. Yeah. Yeah, with the purple fringe on it, because of course it has purple fringe. <laughs> <laughs> so, Merrick, what is your answer to your own question? Oh. Um, gosh, it's it's a toss up. Um, I feel like the easy answer is that I'd want to cosplay Persephone because, like, goals. How can Monica Bellucci not be absolute goals? Um, yeah. And her styling is always absolute perfection. Like when I rewatched three, her um, her outfit when she was in the club scene in hell sitting next to Merovingian, I think she's wearing a red dress in that, but then she's got like a mm-hmm. green bra on underneath, just sneaking in that little touch of green that little touch of control. And I'm like, that's very clever. And I, I love yeah. <clears throat> all of those outfits. Um, or, or literally anything she wears in brotherhood of the wolf. I mean, yeah, <laughs> but that's just what I aspire to wear. <laughs> yeah. It's just a pretty like, sweet aesthetic. Just a veil walking around, just a little lace bandage, just being like, yeah, it's up going for coffee. Um, <laughs> so it would either be Persephone or switch. And I think I gravitate towards those two characters because predominantly they are shown wearing very light colors, which is not something I've ever done. Like I I've been wearing all black since I was a sophomore in high school. So this is deeply embedded into who I am is wearing all black. And so it, it has to be like, I can't mix it up. It's just like, oh, that's just Merrick dressed like Merrick. <laughs> so it would it's have funny to be when, something very different. It's funny. When Cable said, Merrick, what about you? My brain went, I'd love to see Merrick try to pull off Switch. Because I don't think I've ever seen you in white. You I mean, that? like like a full white outfit. This right here in the in the background. My Mother Panic cosplay. Oh, right. Your mother. Yeah. Panic. You're right. Yes. Yes. Okay. So like, again, an example of a character that I gravitate towards cosplaying who's wearing all white. Yeah. However, we don't see your face when you're wearing the mother panic costume. So are we really seeing you in white? It's true. No, it's, it's violet. <laughs> it, you're, you're seeing her in cosplay, which is the whole point. <laughs> um, there was one time that she did wear all white. Yeah, I did for one of my gallery shows. I wear a white dress, which is really funny because I thought people would comment on it. And everyone's like, yeah, you're dressed like you. I'm like, you fucking idiot. I'm wearing a white dress. What are you talking about? I don't about? think I ever, I must not have been at that show. I, I also, just think people didn't clock it. I'm not counting Black Star Warrior when you were a stormtrooper, but that's, you know. See, this is a trend apparently. So, yeah. Mom just mentioned, uh. I, Switch. I wish he didn't die in the Matrix. Switch has the most uh, disturbing <laughs> death to me in all of the movies. Period. Switch when wishes she, she didn't said, die in the Matrix either. The way she <laughs> says, like, like, "Not like this," and then she just dies. Like that 
kills me every time I watch that part in the movie. It's so rough. Yeah. Anyway. Well, yeah. And when I rewatching it, like uh, one of my favorite characters has always been Captain Mifune, who pilots the Mecca. He, he's mm-hmm. the admiral. I don't know his rank, um, but he he's very pivotal in holding the dock and protecting the dock in the third movie. And that that scene where he's in the Mecca and he's got the stream of sentinels coming at him and cutting him cutting him up. It's yeah. called Mifune's Last Stand, uh, appropriately. And I, I absolutely love him. And yeah, he's got his death gave me um, good vibes, I guess, because it was such a grandiose way to go out. It's the going like, out his way. He was like, he's definitely going shiny and chrome into Valhalla. Yeah. And and that is a that is a Viking death. He went down in battle, and then Switch is just like. Neh. Her death's an afterthought by the Matrix. Yeah, Yeah. it's it's horrible. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's one of the things that makes the the treachery of Cypher so particularly disgusting. That that character was perfectly cast because that guy plays creep like no one else. I can't think of his name right now. It's like, oh my God. Joey Pants. It's Joey Joey Pantalone. Joey Pants. Yeah, Joey Pants. Uh, That's his name. Gene, now you definitely have to watch it down. Joey Pants. Uh, I did uh, Pantaleone. Yeah, Pantaleone. Yeah, I remember yeah, you, him from Just Shoot Me. You definitely have to watch <laughs> yes. Bound then. No, he's not from Just Shoot Me. Oh, no, you're right. That's, uh, well, that's and the Rico. other white guy that looks like him. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. Well, yeah. I probably I, had that you're wrong. You're confusing your two uh, Italian-named actors. Yeah. They got the round face and the facial hair. Yeah. They're, Joey, they're very Joey, similar looking. Joey, Joey Pants is, the, well, the Soprano. He, Joey Pants plays Sopranos. a lot of uh, terrible, horrible villains. And yet he keeps getting work because he is a genuinely decent and loving human being. Every like, single person I've ever known who's even been connected to him in any way on a story or a show or a set is like, he's the nicest guy yeah. you will ever meet. Yep. And uh, he's like super duper good at playing an awful. Over the top villain. Yeah. I think sometimes if you're really good at playing an awful person, you actually are, a, you end up being a good person because you're pulling it from every trash person you've ever met. Mm. That makes sense. That makes sense. Yeah. It's my same theory about Joel McHale. Joel McHale is such a sarcastic, (laughs) vile person in everything that he plays, and yet he keeps getting work, and everyone who works with him loves him. Oh, my God. Joey Pantoli has been working actively since 1974. Damn. Good for him, man. Nice. That was one of my favorite parts of Resurrections, was seeing... All of the people that the Wachowskis have worked with over the years brought in in really random little cameo appearances. Mm-hmm. Like that was really fun. It was it was definitely an Easter egg hunt of the Wachowskis' career. Being like, oh that guy, oh her, oh my god, I can't believe. Yeah, that was super. I fun. kept waiting for uh, Speed Racer to show up in the background. Like I mean, the, we had Christina, Christina Ricci. Ricci. <laughs> That's oh never mind. Yeah, you got it. Yeah. Speaking of uh, which, still, Speed Racer, their most underappreciated film. Oh, yeah. That's I did so not good. know that they did that movie. Oh, my God. It's I also so never good. saw that movie. It's so uh, good. 
I'm... I saw it in theaters in 3D. My eyes what were bleeding. I, I, was... I think that's why my eyesight has gotten so bad over the years. It's just from that single theater experience. It was just <laughs> so intense. Like, yeah. oh my God, it was a, a roller coaster. It, it, it often plays in Guardian Bean whenever you pop by. It's either Star Trek or Speed Racer. It used to be Speed Racer because we had it on DVD and would play it. Yeah. I have yeah. it now in my collection because yeah. that, that's why D- Guardian had it there. Um, I will say that I, I think if you've never watched the series Sense8 mm-hmm. um, but have watched The Matrix, go back and watch Sense8. And then rewatch the Matrix mm-hmm. because that also helps inform what they do in uh, Resurrections, where that's, they are at. Yeah, that's a good reminder because I had started Sense Eight, but I think that was right around the time my Netflix got hacked, and I had to like shut it oh. down and start a whole new account. So dark times. Oh my yeah. god, oh. hacks! But it did it did wipe my continue watching. So now there's only like three things in my continue watching. Because, you know, sometimes you start something and you're like, this isn't for me. And you never come back to it, but it never goes away. Yeah. No. no. And that's and a crime. That is an absolute crime. Mm-hmm. That's a big bummer. That's like your entire media personality is the show that you've like... consumed. <laughs> but also, that also means you get to give yourself a rebirth of a way. A resurrection, you know. one might say. That's oh. true. Because, again, I'm a very different person than I was in 2012. Which is at least how old my original Netflix was in terms of streaming. So yeah, yes, definitely I, my Netflix resurrection. Go back, watch Sensate. It's spectacular. <laughs> um, really, I think cinematography-wise, directorial-wise, it is. I would put it above the Fourth Matrix movie just because it pulled off some incredibly complicated scenes in terms mm-hmm. of logistics and they mm-hmm. did it so eloquently. Um, ab- absolutely divine craftsmanship and definitely proof that you don't have to be making movies to prove your worth as a director. Like people uphold movies as, well, this is the thing. And if, if you make a good movie, then you've made it. And it's like, you can make a good TV show, yeah, and still be making it. Mm-hmm. Also, super gay. It's very gay. Very gay. <laughs> very horny on Maine. Very horny. Lots of brown people being sexy. You yeah. know, great. rewatching Reloaded and that entire scene <laughs> in Zion when they're having the the huge party. The whole movie, the whole movie is horny on Maine. So, like, rewatching that after having watched Sense Eight, it's like. Oh, I get it. I like when I originally saw it, I'm like, why is this scene in here? It's like, oh, because this is how you show this is why you fight. This is why you do things because this, this level of interconnection and uh, human sexuality and human the, connection and all of this matter. Yeah. yeah the, that's the what scene, matters. The scene of Zion is also the peak moment in the play Cabaret. Because those characters know that the fucking Nazis are coming within their own country and they're not going to win it right now. So it's time to like get it all fucking out because after tonight, we got to fight. So we're going to fucking have fun and celebrate what we were and then fight to come back to it. Like that's Zion, that's Cabaret, and that's a big chunk of Sensei. Yeah. 
and that's a great juxtaposition between I, I just call it the orgy, the cave orgy rave. I, I literally and, call it the orgy part where Samuel, where Lawrence yeah. Fisherman goes, fuck, we might die tomorrow. <laughs> yep. <laughs> you know? So you've got that on one hand where everyone's wearing these sheer neutral tones. Everyone's sweaty and their like fabrics are sticking to them and the all the clothing is threadbare. So it's basically mesh and it's just like, mmm, it's so erotic in its way and then you juxtapose that with the scene in the Merovingian's nightclub hell where everyone's wearing hard vinyl outfits and corsets and full body cat suits and like there's this one person wearing a face mask that's got these 10 inch spikes on it it's Mm -hmm. like that's a very much don't touch me look at me environment whereas zion is very much we are together and I, I love that, like, visual yeah. dichotomy that they built in. I hadn't thought about that. It's a lot of things. I clearly haven't seen these movies enough times. Um, what I did notice that is, like, like the, the second Matrix is super thirsty. Like, compared to the first one, there's, like, almost no sexual content in the first movie. I mean, there's some hot shit that happens, but it's not sexual content. Meanwhile, the second one has... The, the orgy rave you know, with, with the sex scene, you know, simulcast. It's got the Merovingian talking about the code he writes with the, with the woman eating the, the orgasm cake. Yes, yes, the <laughs> orgasm cake. And I'm like, wow, this, they are really laying it on thick this time, aren't they? She wasn't kissing your face, my darling. <laughs> like, oh, shit. Gotta have that cake, man. Persephone makes me sad. Uh, Oh yeah, in she's the scene, super in sad. the scene before that, like she's she's like really glamorous and and cool Overlooked. and interesting, but but her her sense of self makes me sad. Which is so meta when you realize how Monica Bellucci has been treated by Hollywood. Mm-hmm. That she's there because she's pretty. Yeah, and she's a great actress. She's when you great. Let her act, but everything um, ends up sexually pumped up. It's disturbing. Well, yeah, it's disturbing that one of her greatest performances also involves one of the most visceral violations ever filmed with her consent. Like, and it doesn't glamorize it, but fuck, is that a hard movie to watch? I'm not even going to bring it up. People can look it up. They'll know what I'm talking about. Uh, Although I did see a double feature once that was that and fucking Requiem for a Dream. It was literally called the fuck you, I'm depressed double feature. I'm like, I'll go watch that. And I was like, what the shit, man? <laughs> uh, but there was actually three movies. Uh, then there was a break after watching Requiem for a Dream. It was at the Clinton Street. The third movie to make you feel better was Starship Troopers. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> that is, yeah, that's a feel good movie. It was a weird night. It was fun, though. But yeah. Anyway. Yeah. <clears throat> Well, on that note. <laughs> well, on that note, we're going to wrap it up with Norm from Texas. Orgasm Cake is the name of my all tuba Megan Thee Stallion cover band. I think that's a perfectly reasonable place to end the show. Sure. Sounds great. I, I guess. Sure. Do you, do you have the um, Rage Against the Machine cover queued up that's by the brass band? I don't. It's, it's by a brass band. It's 
it's some brass band that does cool covers. Like I found them first through doing a cover of a Deftones song. And they did that Rage Against the Machine cover that Resurrections closes out with. Oh my God. Now I've got so much pressure now. No, it's okay. I was I just going to do it. You can, you can find it later and put it in the podcast. Just, I'll put just it, put it in post. Yeah. Yeah. For podcast listeners. So. I do love a tuba. <laughs> um, next week begins February. Mm-hmm. Um, Yay, it's my birthday month. Yeah. Mine too. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Pisces yeah. buddy. That's right. Let's cry together. I just have to say, like, let's get super emotional. Okay. <laughs> Yay. How are you? Uh, okay. Um, let's really alienate Denise with emotions. <laughs> Jim and I have emotions. Come on. Do they? Yeah. We just, don't, we just don't like to share them. She they has two them. emotions. She has all of them all the time. Rage and annoyance. Stuff them in a sack. <laughs> but what I was gonna say is we wanted to try and look at some of the more overlooked or um not very like didn't get their due rom coms to kind of look at throughout the month. So if you've got suggestions for us, hit us yeah. up on Twitter, on Facebook, uh leave comments in the chat. You know how to get a hold of us. So throw them at us, and we'll start watching some rom-coms. Over and also, rom-coms? Yeah, underrated. Yeah, and also because mm-hmm. we have something special in, in mind for July that we'll talk about more in February. Yes, we do. Yeah. We do. Uh, but think think about things you want us to watch overall. Yeah. It, it rhymes with ramen, Terry. Mmm, <laughs> ramen. <laughs> Okay. Yeah. You broke me with that one. All right. Well, Merrick, thank you so much for joining us. I hope this was an enjoyable evening for you. Quite entertaining. Thank you for letting me uh, talk about one of my nerdiest tales that I will forever die upon. Awesome. Uh, And with that, I'm Aaron Duran. I'm Dean Rita. And I'm Cable Hashitani. And we will speak to everybody next week. I'm trying to think of a Matrix sign off, but I don't think there is one. Logging off. End of line. That's Tron.